Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 23rd, 2018. On this week's show, Slate's Nick Green will join us to discuss the Sixers, the Pelicans, and the other most intriguing storylines of the first round of the NBA playoffs. Ken Early of the Irish Times will also be here to talk about Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger's departure after 22 years as the manager of one of the world's most famous soccer clubs. And with the real NFL draft mere days away, Tim Rohan of Sports Illustrated will be here to discuss the history of the mock draft. On the clock with me here at the Slate office in Washington, D.C., mere blocks away from the building where Marion Barry got shot in 1977. You should look it up. It's an interesting story. It's Stefan Fatsis, a man whose Google autocomplete entries read as follows. Stefan Fatsis Scrabble, Stefan Fatsis Twitter, Stefan Fatsis, Melissa Block, and finally, Stefan Fatsis Podcast. Hello, Stefan Fatsis Podcast. God, no Stefan Fatsis kicker, which tells you how poorly (laughs) that book did. Oh my God, it just got really dark here. A few seconds of panic. The reason it's done so poorly is I've stopped promoting it. That must be the answer, yeah. Buy it. Paperback? Sure. Audiobook? That too. It's a great book. Don't be so blue. Um... (laughs) We're looking for an intern for the summer. If uh, you're interested by that opportunity, email us at hangupatslate.com. The uh, requirements are availability to be our intern, number one, um, during the summer months. Uh, We're looking for somebody in Washington, D.C. who's available to come in on Mondays, do research over the weekends, help us figure out what to talk about on the show. Again, the email address is hangupatslate.com. The first round of the NBA playoffs has been, I would say, surprisingly unpredictable. There's only been one sweep by the number six seed in the Western Conference, your New Orleans Pelicans. Your New Orleans Pelicans. Your New Orleans Pelicans. They're not my New Orleans Pelicans. In the East, the top two seeds, the Raptors and Celtics, both look like they were going to waltz to easy series wins, but they both dropped games three and four to fall into two two ties with the Wizards and Bucks, respectively, in their best of seven series. LeBron and the Cavs, meanwhile, had to fight like hell to win game four on Sunday night and get back to a two two tie with Lance Stevenson and the Indiana Pacers. Uh, the most dominant team so far in the East has looked like the Philadelphia 76ers. And here to discuss the Sixers and other playoff matters with us is Nick Green. He is a contributing writer with Slate.com. Great website. Great writer. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, what have you seen so far out of the Sixers, Nick? Like Before the playoff started, I think there was like a little bit of buzz around maybe this team could make the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe the finals if we want to get a little crazy. It felt like irrational exuberance. Now it just feels like 
maybe correct exuberance. Um, what have you seen out of uh, this team and uh, Mr. Simmons and Embiid so far? Well, I think if any um, team gets within 20 points of the Sixers, it'll be a huge achievement and a big upset in these playoffs. <laughs> um, no, they're, uh, they've kind of bowled me over. Uh, I know that they, you know, they went into the playoffs with a 16-game win streak, so it's kind of funny to be surprised by how good they're playing, but um, they're really just kind of a complete package. They have shooting. Uh, as you mentioned, Ben Simmons is playing out of his mind. He looks like Magic Johnson and Dominic Wilkins rolled into one. Um, and Joel Embiid, now that he's back, uh, looks pretty much as good as advertised. Joel Embiid was also basically wearing a football helmet during that game, so I can't fault yeah. <laughs> him for not playing like the perfect basketball game. Um, <laughs> he had gotten kneed in the face by his teammate Markel Fultz, who has not had a good season, both on the court and both, and, and kneeing Joel Embiid in the face. Um, and so he was wearing this carbon and polycarbonate mask thing, and maybe the best moment of of that game was when Justice Winslow of the Heat deliberately stepped on the mask after it had fallen off of Embiid's head. <laughs> That's playoff basketball. <laughs> playoff basketball. You got to go hard at all times. Not apparently find- thinking that, you know, he's probably got more than one of these. He got to find, what, 15 grand for that? And they, I don't know how much the mask itself costs, but I'd like to run like kind of a, a cost analysis of that move. I love Embiid's answer, though. Little do they know that I have about 50 of them. It's going to take <laughs> much more than that to get me out of this series. I'm going to be a nightmare for them, too. That sounds like a bluff. Like, I bet that was really his only one, and he's just, like, pretending that they shouldn't step on it anymore. But he's actually living in fear that one of the Heat players is going to decide to step on it again. It could happen. Oh, I agree. The way they they tended to that uh, mask after it was stepped on looked a little more worried than uh, 50 would imply. So I think the way to broaden this out is that, you know, the reason to be a little bit skeptical of the Sixers is that this is a team that hasn't been together for very long. It's a lot of young players. They mixed in veterans like J.J. Redick and Marco Bellinelli. But, um, you know, maybe the surprising thing about them is despite the fact that Simmons is a rookie and like playing point guard at 6'10 and Embiid had been out and is now back, they just look like they really know what they're doing. They have a plan. They know how they want to play. Um, you know, they run Redick and Bellinelli off screens and get them threes. They run whenever they have the opportunity because Simmons is so great in the open court. And when you watch them perform, it's like they've been doing this for years. Like they have a plan and they're able to execute it. And I think that could be, after after we discuss this for a second, a way to transition to the Cleveland Cavaliers who seem like they don't really have any idea what they're doing. No, exactly. I mean, for the Sixers, the, um, the kind of the – the conventional wisdom about Brett Brown, their coach, when they were losing games on purpose during the process was he was actually still doing a very good job. They were running kind of um, elegant sets in offense, and they looked good. And it's kind of a, a farcical to think about because they were winning 10 games a season. Uh, but now it, it, it's very apparent that, oh, no, he actually is a very good coach. Uh, he actually just has good players now. But going to the Cavs, 
Um, well, let's not go to the Cavs just yet. Um, <laughs> do we need to do a, a sort of a, a mea culpa here, Josh, about the process and our criticism for the last, what is it, five, six, 12 years about how long this was taking to come to fruition? Because on the one hand, yeah, I think like, okay, yeah, Joel Embiid is amazing. Ben Simmons is amazing. Dario Saric has turned out to be fantastic. Also, he's looked great in this series. On the other hand- You know how they got Dario Saric? How? Trade with the Pelicans for Drew Holiday. Everyone the trade, wins. the rare trade. Trade. He's twenty three though. That, so that benefits both teams. Benefits both teams. Um, but benefits the world. <laughs> <laughs> it has benefited the world in these playoff series so far. On the other hand, it was this recognition that okay, now is the time, or maybe they just timed it right. They could have added players like JJ Redick three years ago and won 30 games and had the fans been a little bit happier, but adding them when they did in the last year has timed it out beautifully. I mean, it clearly worked. And I think to the extent that we said that it wasn't going to work, we were wrong about that. I think the question is just... um, I don't know that we said it wouldn't work, just that the interim was so long and painful and morally bankrupt. Morally bankrupt, yeah. (laughs) Well, and you just deprive the fans of anything resembling uh, basketball for so many years. And there's a question, I think about the appropriateness of doing that. I think certainly succeeded in as far as the goal of like accumulating talent and a roster that can compete for a long time. I don't think there's any arguing that at that at this point. And also the fact that their marquee picks all were out for their entire first or second seasons in Embiid's case. Uh, just prolonged the the weight and the agony. And it seemed kind of like what's the point of the process if you're gonna uh, basically just be picking guys who have to go straight to the infirmary, but um, that clearly has reversed course. Okay, now you can talk about how the Cavaliers have No, 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 wait, wait, wait. One, no? one, la- one last right. point. I feel like I felt it this way when the Mets made the World Series with their young pitchers and everyone was like, oh, they'll just be in the World Series every year from now on because these young pitchers will be great for the next decade. Well, that didn't quite work out. And I feel like it's always important when you have this amazing, coll- any amazing collection of talent in any sport on any team that you should never assume that it will ever be good, this good again. And so as far as the, both in terms of watching and enjoying the Sixers this year, and as far as like evaluating the process, it is like, I don't know if there's like a 10% chance or a 30% chance, but it's possible the Sixers will never be this good again. What team hurt you to to say (laughs) that? (laughs) I'm just saying that like, you know, the thunder when they made the finals and lost to, LeBron in the heat and they had James Harden and Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant and they were all so young and great and obviously they were going to go back and win it multiple times after that. Okay, so maybe the transition we're looking for here is that the Cavaliers have looked (laughs) terrible and LeBron James has a chance to go play for another team next year and maybe that team will be the Philadelphia 76ers. So many different transitions. I mean, the Cavs are just a fascinating psychodrama. They finally got someone, namely Kyle Korver, to make a shot who isn't LeBron James in game four. But Nick, like a lot has been made of like 33 different lineups for the Cavs. I don't know if that is more relevant than the fact that, um, you know, the guys that they have as supporting players just maybe don't seem as great as they looked in like that first game after they made all of those trades. Or in 2009. Yeah. And, um, just watching them, no matter how big of a lead they build, you kind of just know they're going to blow it. They might win the game, but like um, in game uh, 
four. They had, what, a 12-point lead at halftime, 10-point lead at halftime, and there was no confidence that they would maintain that, which they didn't, of course. Well, they had a 17-point uh, lead at half of Game 3, and they actually did that's blow true, that yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, they they don't inspire confidence uh, at all. And they've done a few things this series to make it, you know, after Game 1 where they got blown out, you know, they started double-teaming Oladipo, which is somewhat effective. But even if they get through this series, I have who knows maybe they'll keep improving marginally but they're to call them a mess is uh pretty fair actually i was gonna say unfair but now i'm just kind of rolling back the games so no it's their mess they're a total mess do you guys find it more entertaining to watch lebron try to not only overcome the rest of the league but his own teammates like is that a favorite version of lebron for you Stefan? not really i mean i want to see lebron at his greatest and his the greatest means that having some supporting well what cast that can help him deliver that sometimes you need someone to do something to help you show how amazing you are and i don't think he's getting that wasn't lebron at his greatest when kevin love and kyrie irving were out in the finals and he led oh, sorry sorry too. when matthew Vadova led the Cavs to like being up two to one in that series i mean if you want to see the lebron at his greatest it would be hard to argue that like him scoring 48 minutes and touching yeah. the ball on every possession scoring, is not the way to do it. Scoring 46 points in game two and like barely leading his team to victory. That's a that's a mighty challenge. But in but Nick, comment on this. You also have to watch then J.R. Smith getting the ball on an inbounds with six seconds to go. And rather than just throwing it to LeBron James, who is posting up Bogdanovich for the potentially game-tying shot heaving the ball up from beyond half court to try to, to win the game. J.R. Smith made a 60-foot shot in, in game four. Yeah, he, he wasn't going to make this one, though. He, he clearly is capable of that. Now, this, is, this is definitely my favorite kind of LeBron when he has to do it all because he kind of can. And it's different than like the, um, the Kobe teams with Smush Parker, where that was just Kobe you know, taking 60 shots a game uh, and trying to single-handedly outscore the opponent. But when LeBron is not getting anything from his teammates. He still kind of tries to, he still makes the right plays. He's still finding open guys in the corners and it's, and to see them miss and basically LeBron have to scramble and then start driving more and more at the end of the game. It's kind of a, a, a cool little uh, one man play that you get to watch when um, you have uh, uh, Kevin Love clanking every open look he gets like he did last night and still LeBron managing to, to make it work. But don't you kind of feel bad for LeBron? I feel a little sorry for him. What does that have to do with whether it just cuts down on your entertainment because you're just sad the whole game? I'm sad for LeBron James. <laughs> yes, um, I think he secretly likes it. You yeah. know, he gets to yeah, because because he gets to full well, a. If they end up losing, he can go guilt free to the Sixers or the That's Lakers true. or wherever. Yeah. And if he wins, he's the all-time greatest superhero, like he did uh, when they they were down three one. It's yeah. win win for him. Sold. All right, let's get to the Pelicans because, you know, the Sixers have been, I think, a surprise. But as Nick noted, they had won 16 games going in. They're obviously the favorite over the Heat in this first-round series. But Pelicans come in, you know, obviously the West is tightly packed. They only had, you know, one game worse than the Blazers in the regular season, despite the fact that it was a 3-6 matchup with the Blazers being the three-seed. But, you know, Portland had home court advantage. They have, you know, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, maybe the best 
offensive backcourt in the NBA when Steph Curry is hurt, at least. Um, and the Pelicans, not only did Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday just like play remarkably well, but maybe this is just for me because I've probably been following this team slightly more closely than you guys have. It's just been like crazy to see how well they've played defensively. And again, it just like brings me back to this broader conversation about how some teams look like they know what they're doing and have a plan. And it's not, it's not always necessarily the teams that you would expect. Like going into this series, I wouldn't have expected to say like, wow, the Pelicans look like the best defensive team in the NBA. And the way that they took Damian Lillard, you know, just, you know, is a, one of the best offensive players in the league. And just he looked uncomfortable the whole series. And the Blazers, unlike a lot of these other teams that fell down 2-0, just couldn't recover. It's just like fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think, um, well, part of it is you're not, it's not surprising that Anthony Davis is an incredible defender because that's what he does. He is amazing in that regard. Same with Drew Holiday, one of the best perimeter defenders. But you have, you know, guys like Nikola Meritic who are really grinding and, and, and kind of buying into Alvin Gentry's system and, and playing fantastic defense as well. They look amazing. They look really scary. And the Warriors uh, should be a little bit worried, I'd say. Yeah, Stefan, um, I think Anthony Davis is a player who, maybe not this year, but in the previous couple years, partly because of his penchant for always injuring himself, but I think just because people got excited about Giannis, people got excited about Carl Anthony Towns. Like, you forget, like, last year, if you go back and look, pretty much everyone who considered themselves, like, a smart NBA analyst was saying, like, oh, I'd rather have Carl Anthony Towns to build around than Anthony Davis. People just kind of got tired of him, of, of his excellence and his inability to translate it into wins. But this playoffs, it's been like really nice to see him, you know, scoring 47 points <laughs> in a series clincher, like making these like remarkable plays on offense, both from beyond the three-point line and like on alley-oops with Rondo. It's like, it's great to see a guy who's that talented get his moment. And even if they don't go any further, like this will be the year or the playoffs that Anthony Davis kind of came into his own. And I think that's great for the NBA, right? I mean, one of the things that's been fun so far has been Anthony Davis. It's also been Giannis on Milwaukee, which is a, another interesting series. The Celtics are kind of overachieving. The Bucks have been criticized for, for underachieving. And now we're seeing them meet right in the middle. And this has been a very entertaining four games so far. Um, so, I mean, Nick, do you, do, you, do you agree there? Do you want to see these guys advance? I'd like to see Giannis advance, mostly because no Kyrie Irving, no Gordon Hayward. The Celtics really don't, don't enthrall me at all. I'm not excited to see them play. I'd much rather see Giannis go further. Yeah, I mean, at least I'd at least like to see that series go seven, just to kind of see the the um, stakes and the drama get ratcheted up a little bit and see how Giannis uh, reacts. Um, and with Anthony Davis, I mean, it's really a treat that we get to see him in the second round. It seems like we've been waiting for centuries for this. It hasn't been that long, obviously. Um, it's only been what decades, about five <laughs> decades. But um, he's uh, getting to watch him like the fully realized Anthony Davis is just, it's its really fun. Well, the counter argument around the Celtics-Bucks series, Stefan, is if you're looking forward is 
you know, I think the Celtics will push the Sixers in ways that I don't think the Bucks would just because of how good a coach Brad Stevens is. Like that, if what we're looking for out of this Eastern Conference playoffs, and maybe it is at this point, is like we want to see what we have in the Sixers at this stage, I think that would be the – like they would be a good foil. And I think – at this point, that's what we want is a foil for the Sixers. Or do we want to see the Sixers make it to the conference finals and play maybe the Wizards? <laughs> My God, that would be devastating. So what I'm definitely rooting against is Wizards Pacers as a round two series. I'm actually quite concerned about what would happen if we uh, lose LeBron in the first round. Like, what if we lost LeBron and we lost uh, uh Giannis in the first round. The Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be extremely desolate. Warriors Pelicans is like pretty much locked in at this point, and that will be worth uh, tuning into. We haven't talked about the Rockets yet. It seems like that was probably just a blip for them in game three against Minnesota. So I'm not concerned about the West. The East, things could break bad for the East in like various ways. I think uh, Adam Silver and the NBA really do want uh, Indiana Toronto just for the ratings. You know, that's <laughs> they're really they're calling in all the the refs or they're saying you know you gotta start you know edging those series together. Um, but no, I I agree. It's obviously too early to tell. Um, but the West was going to be the intriguing path anyway. Uh, so if the East becomes boring prematurely, which it hasn't yet, I mean, the series have been really entertaining. Um, it's kind of so be it. The attention's always going to be at the West. All right. Well, we didn't get around to talking about um, the handsome Ricky Rubio and his uh, triple doubling. But maybe next I, week. I even call him rakish. The rakish Rubio. And the jazz uniforms are just like totally insane. And the, the and whole like pointed out that they were upside down if you were trying to depict the sunset. I mean, that would be really disorienting for the opponent. As I I've, can see why they went that way. As I've always said, Utah is the capital of cool. <laughs> we'll be uh, looking out for more from them. Uh, Nick Green writes about the NBA and other things for Slate. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you so much. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Arsene Wenger's departure from Arsenal, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment this week, our friend Nick Green will be back and we'll be talking about a sports conundrum. It will involve refereeing and whether you and I would be capable of refereeing various sports. If you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Arsenal beat West Ham by a score of 4-1 to on Sunday to secure its grasp on sixth place in the Premier League. For one of England's marquee clubs, that's not good, and it hasn't been good at Emirates Stadium for a while. The result, finally, was the blockbuster announcement by manager Arsene Wenger that he will step down at the end of the season after 22 years running the London team. Our friend Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captains podcast joins us now to discuss. Hey, Ken. 
Hi, Stefan. How are you doing? Doing well. I don't want to frame Wenger's career in American terms that you might not appreciate, but a little Billy Bean on the analytics, a little Bill Belichick on the my way or the highway, a little Greg Popovich on the compassion toward his players, and in the end, a little pick any stubborn coach who refused to change with the times. You wrote an excellent column deconstructing Wenger's fall, but let's praise the Frenchman before burying him. On and off the field, Arsene Wenger is credited with nothing short of changing English football in the 1990s and 2000s. Tell us how he did that. Well, he arrived in 1996. Um, he was the first foreign manager who who was able to win the title. Not the first foreign. When I say foreign, I mean outside Britain and Ireland. Um, there had been a couple before, but none had uh, really succeeded. Uh, and before Wenger arrived, there was also a, a restriction on the number of foreign players you could have on your team. I think until 1995, there was a three foreigner limit to how many you could have on the field at any one time. So it was a very... Um, British and Irish league, and it had been that way for you know more than a hundred years. So Wenger came in. He uh, the, the big changes that he made were first of all scouting uh, Europe, finding you know mainly French players in the beginning uh, who nobody knew in England, but who it turned out were just as good or better than the uh, star English players in the league, and also um, you know helping players to understand that their customary you know ten pints after a game or after training on Tuesday, was not actually doing them any favors. And maybe uh, they would play better if they would occasionally eat vegetables. And this was really, these are the two revolutionary changes which he instituted, uh, and which which were the basis of uh, the seven or eight years of brilliant success that he enjoyed in the beginning of his time at Arsenal. He seemed like a very, very intelligent man and a great soccer mind as well. Um, The man that you draw a contrast with in your piece, Ken, is Alex Ferguson of Manchester United, who is a manager of similar skill. But it seems like for whatever reason, Ferguson was able to adjust once the rest of the premiership uh, caught up with what Man U was doing and what his tactics were. Yeah, they were two great rivals. I mean, the rivalry between Ferguson and Wenger defined the, the, the you know 96 to 2004 era Premier League um, it's a good thing that Arsene Wenger came on or we would have had to we would have had a very long and dreary spell of total like Stalinist domination from <laughs> Alex Ferguson so it was good that there was there, he, he provided uh, some opposition at that time but they're quite different characters um, I think that to Wenger it's always he, he always was sort of wedded to a certain idea of how things should be done. And that was not the case with Ferguson. Ferguson is a pragmatist. Ferguson would do things that he thought would work. Uh, and if something stopped working, he'd change it. Or, or if he thought that something would work better, you know, he, he'd try that instead. Whereas Arsene Wenger was always quite insistent, no, no, my way is the right way of doing things. And while this was correct for a while, it's stop being correct and largely because other people started to copy the things that Arsenal had done you know okay what if we scouted in France and what if we got the players to eat vegetables and okay and looked at these types of things you know uh, started to incorporate them and suddenly he didn't have the advantage anymore at that point I think he stopped looking for advantages he just kept trying to do the same thing the difference with Ferguson is that Ferguson continually evolved. The transformation also was broader, though, wasn't it, uh, Ken? Because, you know, when you think about the arsenal of the fever pitch years, the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, 
and the, the traditionally boring English soccer, you know, punt it out and, and hope for the best. I mean, Wenger did kind of transform uh, in, insular English football culture. You could play out the back. David Seaman, the former goaltender for, for, for Arsenal and the English national team, um, talked about how Wenger allowed players to express themselves on the field and play sort of more beautiful football. And it culminated with Arsenal winning the league without losing a game in 2004 and then reaching the Champions League final and losing to Barca in 2006. But from everything I've read, it's, it's, it's the intervening 12 years from 2006 that have sealed his fate and, and this stubbornness that seems to be part of Wenger's character that caught up with him here. You talk about Ferguson being concerned only with winning. Wenger seemed to be concerned only with maintaining the status quo, making sure that Arsenal stayed in the top four, made it to the Champions League to ensure that his owners would bank uh, enough revenue to keep them solvent and, and keep him employed. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of cynical way of, of looking at the, the second half of his Arsenal career in the sense that maybe he made a decision at some point that real job security was obtained by making money for your club as opposed to by winning trophies, which sometimes will require taking risks, you know, spending a huge amount of money on a player that you think could be uh, the key to, to getting your team up to the next level. Wenger never took those kinds of risks. Uh, you know, he, he always had his own justifications for that, but um, the fact of it was that he he was making money, and the board not particularly. I mean, you know, Stan Kroenke, obviously, um, in the United States, he's not. He he wouldn't necessarily be regarded as the most ambitious uh, owner, uh, the most demanding of trophies owner. He seems quite happy if the team takes over and and makes money every year, and and that's really what Arsene Wenger, um, what Arsene Wenger gave him. It's a cliche to say this, but the best coaches all recognize that the players are more important than they are. And again, I, I said this in my first question, but the part that's a little bit hard to understand is that he's clearly an extremely intelligent person and coach. And as you explain, it seems like Primarily, the reason that they were so good and so dominant early in his tenure was that he brought in these exceptional players. So is the issue here that Vingard got kind of high on his own supply and thought he was more important to the team's success than he actually was? Or um, is there some other explanation for why later in his tenure he decided that spending big on big talent just wasn't the approach that he wanted to take with his club? Yeah, I think he did get high on his own supply in the, in the phrase uh, that you used because I think the big change, um, the big change that happened was that Roman Abramovich arrived at Chelsea, who had previously been a non-factor pretty much in, in the in terms of who's going to win the Premier League. It had just been Arsenal and Manchester United uh, for Wenger's time until that point, and Chelsea uh, with Abramovich's money began to just buy um, the best players in the world, a whole a whole bunch of them all at once. And this was appalling to Wenger. It was like, this is this is illegitimate. This is cheating. This is financial doping. That's that's the phrase that he used. It's, it's, what a it's bizarre like, phrase you know, that was, too. Well, it's, it, it, the implication is clearly it, this is this is cheating just as much as it, it's it's kind of it's the rules allow it, but like the rules are obviously wrong. This, this shouldn't this this shouldn't be allowed. And I think that he decided at that point that okay, since we can't compete with Chelsea in the in the in the buying players' stakes, I'm going to try and do things another way. I'm going to try and do things the way it should the, the way they should be done. Right. 
this is a kind of an organic approach. I'm going to find the players. I'm going to I'm going to do what I've always done up to now. I'm going to find the outstanding young players around here. I'm going to bring them here, and I'm going to nurture them together. And I'm going to grow a team using natural and organic principles, which is going to sweep away Chelsea's financially doped team and all the other teams. And I'm going to prove this way that you know I'm the greatest. <laughs> and that's <laughs> well, that's a, could... that's stubborn. I mean, ultimately, oh, in the modern world, it's terrifically stubborn. And from from what I've also read, Wenger was pretty. Uh, pretty domineering inside the club. He wouldn't tolerate dissent, wouldn't reach outside the club for ideas the way that Manchester United and Manchester City and Chelsea have all done in the last 15 years. And the not spending is the weirdest part of it to me because it's other people's money. Yeah, it's every, not your money, dude. <laughs> every manager, every general manager and manager of a professional sports team in the United States wants to to, to, to get the best players, whatever means necessary. And there's an acknowledgement that this is how the system works. There is free agency. There was a Bosman rule. There, there, there were ways to get the best players in the world to come and play for you. And to, to not want to do that or to be so locked into your ways, well, then it becomes understandable why the fans began to revolt. Yeah, I mean, it's like if Billy Bean had implemented a money ball approach just for fun, just even if, if he like had the money but just didn't feel like spending it. And Wenger actually knows and, and apparently admired Bean and, and his approach to, to baseball. Yeah. It's true, yeah. They're uh, they're uh, they're friends, I believe, uh, Arsene Wenger and Billy Bean. But yeah, it's. A, I mean, you said you used the phrase, "It's not your money, dude." But that's the point. Arsene Wenger always ha- like has has said. You know, you can find him. You can find quotes from Wenger saying, "I treat the club's money as though it's my own." And this is this is the thing. So it's a dual motivation, I think. Number one is to prove that he can do it by just applying uh, his sort of genius and his special talent for finding and nurturing talented. Footballers, and the other, you know, less talked about motivation, I think, was to if you're if you're a manager who goes out and spends a lot of your club's money on a bunch of expensive players, and it doesn't work, you get fired. Whereas if you're a manager who makes money for your club every year um, and you know keeps them competitive while not spending all their money, in fact, enabling them to build up an enormous cash mountain in the bank, then okay, they're inclined to look kindly on you, and that's what's been happening at Arsenal for you know the last ten or twelve years. You know, all that happened was this enormous mountain of cash that Arsenal... And, and when I say, I mean, £226 million was the figure they had in the bank, just of cash. It previously could have bought you an entire team, and now it barely buys you Neymar. The, like, the inflation in, in the price of football players is so insane that like, it, it, it makes a fool of every saver, if you see what I mean. So Arsenal were kind of prudently saving and putting aside money for the rainy day that might one day come... And the rainy day still hasn't come. Well, Maybe it's like it will, stocking. But... It's like stocking the fallout shelter and the nuclear attack never coming. Exactly, and 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 if and if a nuclear attack does come, Arsenal will be the best best provide. They've got cans. They could, they've got cans <laughs> of food for the next ten thousand years. Broccoli. But the other thing to remember about Arsenal is it's the most expensive football club in the world to support. Uh, the 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 UEFA benchmarking report came out in January. And, and it showed, you know, a table of which clubs uh, get the most revenue per fan uh, per game. And Arsenal were the top of that list. £74 per fan per game on average is what they're extracting from their supporters. Now, they talk about extracting as though it was some kind of an industrial process, like you might extract, you know, sap from, from wood pulp or something. But actually what you're doing is people are giving you their money. Like there's there's a person on every side of that, uh, on, on the other side of every £74 sure. transaction. And that's 
that person gets more and more pissed off. The, the, the more they see a team that you know doesn't seem to be performing, and the more they hear about all this money in the bank, they're thinking to themselves, why am I, so, I'm sorry, but why am I paying so much just in order so that this club can put the money in the bank account when the team clearly is no longer competitive at the level I want it to be? Certainly it's not competitive at the level of the most expensive team in the world to support, you know. This is why you started to see quite a lot of anger on the terrorists that are Arsenal. I think it's it's quite interesting to, to see what's happening at the moment, the kind of condescension. Or, you know, people are saying, oh, Arsene Wenger is such a great guy. He's so uh, he, he's so distinguished, you know, he's so dignified. And isn't, isn't it terrible to see him beset by these people shouting vile abuse at him? You know, have these people... Have these people no respect? Have they no dignity? Have they no gratitude? And you're, kind of, you're thinking, look, these people have been paying through the nose for a really long time, and they think they're getting ripped off, and that's why they're angry. Ken, you mentioned the fans, and they haven't been showing up in protest. A 60,000-seat Emirates Stadium, a third full, banners flying over the stadium, Wenger out. I saw a, a, a poster at a protest outside the stadium, stubborn, stale, clueless, Wenger was not happy with the way that fans were, I don't know if it was treating him, but sort of treating the club, the reflection that the protests were having on Arsenal broadly. Let's listen to a little bit of Arsene Wenger talking to reporters after the match on Sunday. Personally, I believe that uh, this club is respected all over the world, much more than in England, that uh, our fans did not give the image of uh, unity I want at the club all over the world and uh, that that was hurtful because I feel the club is respected and uh, overall uh, the image we gave from our club is not what it is and not what I like. Ken, talk about how that was received and what message Wenger was trying to, to deliver there. You know, I, I'm afraid I have to part ways with, with Arsene Wenger here when he, when he starts complaining about fan unity. The fact is... If you're presiding over a failing institution and you've been running it in the same, in everyone's view, incompetent way for a long time, getting bad results while they're all paying for it, you're going to get people who are angry. People are going to express, <laughs> they're going to express in some cases rage. Maybe it's a disproportionate um, reaction to, to football. I mean, football should be a, a you know, a kind of a, a healthy, a positive recreation. We can, it brings us all together. And, you know, win or lose, uh, there's another game next week. But people get into this stuff. You know, the reason why all well, these players are, uh, and managers are, are being paid so much. I mean, Wenger was, is one of the best paid executives in, in all of Europe. You know, this is the thing. The guy is making an absolute fortune. Like, he would have been in the top 10 uh, best paid CEOs in the UK based on his uh, salary, which is about £8 million. So I just think it's a little bit rich for him to sort of from this position of enormous cosseted privilege to kind of have a little bit of a pop at supporters who have been paying to watch mediocrity, which never changes for year after soul-destroying year, and to sort of complain that they, that they were giving the wrong image, like what they all, they all, should, have, they all should have stood there and, and politely applauded. And I think for him to say he's disappointed that that people didn't like the ten mediocre years that he just served up is, you know, it's 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 a bit out of touch, uh, to be honest. Last question: Can you explain to us Wenger's position as a cultural figure in um, English football and just in the UK more 
broadly. You know, he is somebody who stands alone in terms of the length of his tenure. 14 months, I believe, is the average tenure for a Premier League manager these days. He's around for 22 Mm. years. I'd imagine he's just like an extremely famous person and someone who everyone has an opinion about. Um, And so I'm just wondering what it means to have him gone just from a broader cultural perspective. Um, Well, I I would say that He's he's a very highly respected figure. I mean, he's a you know he he's never really done it, he's never done anything really bad or something. You know, I can't, there's, there haven't been any scandals. You know, he's never been accused of cheating or you know corruption or any of these other kind of things. He, he leaves he leaves behind a very clean smell, I would say. In recent years, though, he's actually become kind of a meme. You know, like he's the Wenger out signs at sort of every. Um, Every mass gathering around the world, whether or not it was related to football, you know, someone would have a wanger out sign. I still think that he's very, um, very respected. I think I don't think you'll find too many people who, who really have a bad word to say about him. And I think that that in itself is a is a is a great achievement for someone who's been 22 years in in public life in that way. Um, I think he does remain a very a very popular figure. Uh, even among those supporters who are now glad that he's no longer the manager, I think they still, uh, if they're old enough, will remember the good times and still uh, have always a lot of gratitude uh, for for uh, old Arsene Wenger. Ken Early is a columnist for the Irish Times. He's a host of the Second Captains podcast as well. Ken, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Josh. Good talking to you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Thursday in Arlington, Texas, the Cleveland Browns will make the first pick of the 2018 NFL Draft. That is, unless the Browns trade the pick to someone else. Whoever makes that selection will probably take a quarterback, maybe Josh Allen from Wyoming, maybe USC's Sam Darnold, maybe even Penn State running back Saquon Barkley. And then a couple days later, the draft will end with pick number 256. Matt Miller of Bleacher Report likes Andre Chachery. I think that's how you pronounce it, of San Jose State in that slot. I I do too, actually. Thank you, Stefan. While CBS's R.J. White has Grant Haley of Penn State and Chad Reuter of NFL.com has Vincent Smith of Limestone. They make good points too, though. Yeah, they do. It's a a real debate down there at number 256. Um, Joining us now is Tim Rohan of Sports Illustrated's The MMQB, who last week put together an oral history of the mock draft. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Tim, arguably everything we do in this realm is pointless. And by we, I mean human beings. And by realm, you mean Earth. That is the, that is the very realm. Um, but compared with other uh, human-instigated follies, writing up a seven-round mock draft in which you go so far as trying to predict who the Atlanta Falcons take with the 256th and last selection seems particularly ludicrous to me. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of how mock drafts are made today, um, tell us, what is the backstory here? How did these mock drafts get started? Well, they, they really 
became popular or at least came into form in the late 70s when a group of guys, uh, they were fans, basically. They weren't journalists. They weren't reporters. They weren't, you know, scouts. Uh, just a group of guys started putting together these draft reports, um, and they would, you know, watch all the college football games, write up reports on the players, and then put up the, you know, these, these packages. And one of those guys was Mel Kuyper Jr., you know, who you'll see on ESPN. He was literally, uh, you know, a college-age kid. He dropped out of college and uh, and started producing this book. And as part of his book, he would always include uh, a mock draft. And one of the most interesting characters here was a guy named Joel Buxbaum, um, this reclusive 20-something, I think also a college dropout who lived in an apartment building in Brooklyn next door to his parents. And you tell the story about this guy like basically never came out of his apartment and just hounded NFL front offices, got to know people, developed contacts, got had two VCRs and two TVs and produced these reports that he eventually wound up selling as a freelance writer to a, a football weekly, right? You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, back then he would call up, you know, NFL coaches and NFL GMs and you know, they'd actually answer his call. He was just some random guy in his apartment in Brooklyn watching games, but he knew, you know, he knew about that you know, left tackle from Slippery Rock. And he knew, you know, he knew, uh, you know, every single prospect. And so when he would call up these coaches and GMs, they would actually answer his call. They would, they found him to be credible because he had watched all these prospects. And so, you know, he, the interesting thing is he actually struck up a relationship with a lot of people around the league, including Bill Belichick. And, uh, you know, Joel Buxbaum ended up, uh, he passed away in December, 2002. And at the following year, the 2003 combine, they held a memorial service for him, and Belichick actually spoke. He got up and spoke, and according to a couple of people in the room, he, he said, Joe Buxbaum was one of my best friends. One of the things that I found really interesting that came out of your piece, Tim, is this notion that back when it was less professionalized almost, the information was more accurate because, um, you know, whether it was coaches or general managers – we're just more honest with these like, you know, stay at home draft nicks that the, you know, draft reports weren't circulated on the Internet. They felt like maybe they could just like tell Joel Buxbaum or whoever what it was they were thinking and just the whole world would know. It's just like, you know, two football guys having a conversation or something. And it was more about too creating a sort of database of information for front offices. I mean, you describe in the piece, Tim, how teams really sort of shared information with you knowing that they could get information about other teams. Exactly. It was, it was, you know, it, it was, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Like, you know, writers would team up with, you know, coaches or general managers and literally be like, okay, here, I'll tell you something about these three teams. If, you know, you tell me something about these three teams. And so together, you know, it's a sharing of information. And, uh, you know, and, and that was actually more so, and that's why there's actually two segments of people that are doing these mock drafts, right? There's reporters who have these contacts around the league, and then there's the draft mix. Now, Joel Buxbaum and Kuyper, you know, those guys have, have contacts, but I think that was more so along the lines of the reporters, the, these guys who were, you know, at the early NFL combines who'd make these contacts and, you know, they knew people around the league and they'd have these discussions. So when you picked up the Boston Globe and you read Will McDonough's mock draft, it, you know, it was probably, you know, pretty accurate or close to being accurate because he 
new people around the league and he could, you know, trade that information and, you know, come to a close approximation of what actually was going to happen. So let's move forward to the internet era and you talk to a bunch of folks um, like Walter Cherepinski of WalterFootball.com. There's Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com. And they, similar to the spirit of Mel Kuyper, like these guys are amateurs, but the difference is that they um, don't really have contacts with teams, right? And the service that they're providing is just like a constant drip of like prognostication about which players are going to go where, what, um, you know, the first round is going to look like, like a year out, like they're, they're already going to post the 2019 mock draft, the second, the 2018 draft is over. And so sort of speaks to on, uh, on one hand, like the democratization of, uh, you know, sports writing that's happened because of the internet but also just the sort of like insatiable need to provide hashtag content. And talking to those guys, I mean, you know, they point out that they, they too have contacts around the league scouts or, you know, whoever they've gotten to know over the years, you know, they may have started as amateurs too, but you know, the other shift has been, you know, the, the NFL is just so secret and tight lipped about their information now. Right. So, um, you know, that, that happened for everyone. And so, you know, the natural result, it's not just them, uh, you know, it's basically anyone who does a mock draft. I know if you read Peter King's MMQB column today, he did a mock draft, and he's basically telling people, hey, I'm, I'm just guessing here. And that's, you know, Peter, Peter freaking King. Like, you know, the mock draft has become, you know, basically just an educated guess, and, and sometimes it's, it's, you know, educated as in this is the research I did and I'm matching up, a, a play, you know, a player to a team based on need. The greatest uh, moment in Tim's piece, Stefan, was when Paul Zimmerman in 1981 proclaims on the air on ESPN after uh, the Packers take Rich Campbell, the quarterback, they lied to me. I loved that. <laughs> how how could uh, how a team they? possibly give bad information to a reporter? That had never happened before. What will happen in the future is the dumbest and also the most fruitful trope in sports media. I mean, it's like the Cheerios of sports coverage. You can't live without it because that's what talk radio is created for. Um, and at the same time, it is useless. And the issue here seems to me is that the mainstream media can't avoid it now. The mock draft, as you describe, has effectively been um, – it's been neutered in terms of its utility because the information is worse than it's ever been because you don't get accurate stuff as much. It's not as easy for reporters to get uh, accurate thoughts on what teams are going to do. And yet at the same time, they have to do, you know, you have to do these mock drafts year round now. Your colleague, and I don't mean to pick on your colleague Albert Breer, but his mock draft four, which is linked to in your piece, it talks about um, what the Giants are going to do with the number two pick. And he says there are three possible things they might do. One, take a quarterback. Two, take a non-quarterback. Three, <laughs> trade the pick. And those are literally the only three things that they could do. I they guess could they could let, pass. Yeah, they could let the they clock could let expire. let the clock expire. So hundreds of phone calls that Albert Breer says he has made. And what are we, what are we left with on the Giants? I don't know. They're going to do something. They're going to participate yeah. in the draft. In today's world, NFL world, I mean, 
I'm sure some some part of that counts as as news, you know. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe there's a, a a nugget in there that you know someone else doesn't have, but I mean, we, people read them, you know. I mean, this whole point about you know, I think that you know John McClain has a great line. I love this John McClain quote in the piece. He's basically like, he's like, I don't know, you know, he used to do one mock draft a year, and then he, you know, he uh, he, he looked at the traffic numbers and, and he and he said, well, shoot, like we should start doing them in September. I don't care if they're right. Like, you know, I'm chasing I'm chasing clicks. Like, yep. and then you know, I think that's a part of this is you know today's media, you know, landscape, uh, the chase for the almighty click, and you know these websites. I mean. There, WalterFootball.com, uh, Draft Countdown. You know these these guys can do this full time. This is their full time job. I feel like a lot of the time readers will say, "Oh, you're just doing that for clicks," and they're like commenting on some like year long investigation. It's like a ludicrous uh, claim. But like this is the one case <laughs> where the uh, crit- critique that you're doing it for clicks is like definitely accurate. But you know, you quote this guy Frank. Cooney in the piece is saying it's chicken or the egg. Did mock drafts become popular because they're everywhere on the internet or are they everywhere on the internet because they became popular? I mean, that's the easiest chicken and egg debate I've ever heard in my life. It's obvious that people do them because they're popular. Like, no, they became popular because they're everywhere? No, that doesn't make any sense, Frank Cooney. I'm sorry. Like, the reason that all these sites exist and the reason that there are like multiple different people doing mock drafts on ESPN and on SI and everywhere else is that people want to read them. And there's not really any shame in producing something that people want to read. I think the thing that's like a shame is if you pretend that it's something that it's not. And I don't think any of these people that you talk to, Tim, are like necessarily misrepresenting what it is that they're doing or making any claims that you know, but don't don't they don't you have to believe in what you're doing too? I mean, if you're Mel Kiper, you have to believe deeply that what you are spending your life doing, your life's work, has value. Even though, when you go back and look at the effectiveness or the accuracy of mock drafts, nobody is particularly accurate. SB Nation looked at 104 mock drafts last year. 104. So there are 32 picks in the first round. Three times, three did more than half of the 104 mock drafts accurately pick player with team. That's not a very good percentage. I, I think the, the one part of the piece that, you know, maybe I, I didn't hammer home a whole lot was, I mean, wh- wh- why, why, do we, why do fans love them, right? I mean, it, it's Mel Kuyper, I think it was one of the last quotes, Mel Kuyper, you know, basically he's talking about the allure of the draft and it's like, and he compared it to Christmas morning, right? And uh, the anticipation you had as a kid when you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to get a present. I asked for, you know, I asked for a new bike. I asked for, you know, a, a new PlayStation. But, you know, I don't know what I'm going to get. And the mock draft kind of gives them, gives fans a sense, a look into, you know, this is who we might get. Um, here's someone who is a quote-unquote expert on the draft, and here's who they think we're going to get. Tim Rohan is a writer for Sports Illustrated's The MMQB. We will link to his oral history of the NFL mock draft on our show page. Tim, thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now it is time for After Balls. And as one does, I was looking at the mock draft from DraftSite.com. Actually, DraftSite.com slash NFL slash mock dash draft slash 2018. At the bottom of the seventh round, there's going to be uh, it's going to be an exciting day for Zaykov and Henderson of Texas A&M D tackle going 254 to Arizona. Ikeem Coleman of Idaho going to go 255. Mm-hmm. Robert Foster of Alabama unfortunately has kind of a boring name. It's going to be last to Atlanta 256. I think Zaykov and Henderson wins the day. Congratulations on your imaginary selection at number two, uh, 154, Zaykoven. Stefan, what is your Zaykoven Henderson? The very first quote in Tim Rohan's oral history of mock drafts is from Mel Kuyper, who says, when I started in this business, the only way to improve a football team was through the draft. There were no trades. There was no free agency. This is false. There were plenty of trades in the NFL in the 1970s. And before that, Josh, in fact, one of my formative moments came on January 27th, 1972, when the Giants traded my favorite player, Fran Tarkenton, wily little scrambler, just like me, back to the Minnesota Vikings in exchange for quarterback Norm Sneed, wide receiver Bob Grimm, another dude, and a couple of draft picks. The Vikings immediately became my second favorite team. After rabbit-holing for a while to try to prove that there were trades in the 1970s, I became distracted by a wiki list of the biggest NFL trades. At six players plus 12 draft picks, the 18-human Herschel Walker trade in 1989 tops the list. There was a 15-all-player trade in 1953, 10 Browns for five Colts and a seven-player, seven-picks trade in 1971 between the Los Angeles Rams and the Washington football team. Next on the list was a swap that I had never seen before, Josh. On June 13, 1952, the defending champion Rams traded 11 players to the expansion Dallas Texans in exchange for the rights to one player, Les Richter, who was the second pick in that year's draft, out of Cal. 11 guys for one. The press noted that 11 is how many players you need for a football team. So there were plenty of mentions of how LA traded an entire football team for Les Richter. This is true, but I should point out that LA did not trade one player at every position on either the offense or the defense. The Rams traded three running backs, one fullback, one tackle, two defensive backs, one linebacker, two centers, and one receiver. The big name of the bunch was running back Dick Horner, and I think feel compelled to name the other 10 to give them their due. Dave Anderson, Billy Baggett, Jack Halliday, Tom Keene, Dick McKissick, Aubrey Phillips, Joe Reed, George Sims, Vic Vasicek, and Dick Wilkins. We will get back to these gentlemen in a moment. The big question is why would Dallas trade one guy for 11? As an expansion team, they needed to fill a roster. Apparently, there were considerations thrown in. 
cash is what I'm guessing. And the odds seem pretty good. I mean, 11 dudes for one dude kind of makes sense. The Herschel Walker trade worked out pretty well for Dallas. Not that the Dallas Texans would know that the Herschel Walker trade was going to work out well for them 37 years later. Dallas got the 12 players and picks in exchange for Walker. At first, it looked like the Richter trade might be a good deal. That's because six weeks after the trade, Richter was called up by the military. But the Rams said they were undeterred. Richter, he was in a ROTC program at Cal also, valedictorian apparently. Richter was that good. They wanted him. The AP described Richter as the agile 230-pound belter from Berkeley. Coach Red Sanders of UCLA said he was the only 230-pound acrobat I've ever seen. The great L.A. Times columnist Jim Murray said Richter had legs like tree stumps and a torso like a freight car. He was 230 pounds. Before reporting to service, Richter did play in one game for a team of college all-stars against the Rams. That was a thing, college all-stars against the defending champions. The Rams won by only 10 to 7 in part because Richter, quote, completely throttled the Ram running game, the LA Times reported, and several times batted down passes that would have cost the collegians great gobs of yardage. Richter served his two years in the Army in Korea. He finally joined the Rams in 1954. And as it turns out, he was worth it. He played nine years in the NFL as a linebacker, guard, and place kicker. And he played in the Pro Bowl eight times. He went on to be a leading figure in the auto racing business. And like many ex-players, he wound up in pain, hunched over at the waist at a 45-degree angle after back surgery, according to a story in the LA Times in 2010, stricken with dementia in his late 70s. Les Richter died that year, and he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame the following year. But back to the trade, it worked out well because the other guys apparently sucked. Five of the 11 players traded for Richter, never played a game in Dallas, and six played all or part of just one season. So good. go ahead. Trade 11 guys for one. Good trade. Good trade, Rams. Nice job. Josh, what's your Zaykoven Henderson? I'm also going to go draft with my Zaykoven. Uh, in 2014, the New Orleans Times-Picayune named Russell Erksleben as the number one draft bust in Saints history. Ooh, kicker story. Three years later, ESPN named Russell Erksleben as the number one draft bust in Saints history. Based on those two data points, it's probably fair to say that Russell Erksleben was the number one draft bust in Saints history. But before Russell Erksleben was the number one draft bust in Saints history, Russell Erksleben was a punter for the University of Texas who went by the nickname Thunderfoot. In 1977, I'll just pause here. Is that, a, that must be a really common Thunderfoot nickname. Yeah. Hell yes. I had to turn down Thunderfoot. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't care about care for the guy that much that they're just like, eh, Thunderfoot. Seems a little bit perfunctory, but maybe they loved him. Who knows? Um, in 1977, he persuaded Texas coach Fred Akers to let him try a long field goal in a game against Rice. He proceeded to set a major college record by kicking the ball 67 yards through the uprights, helping the Longhorns to a 72-15 to win. Uh, later that year... The Chicago Daily News reported that Eric Slaven, who kicked straight on with a two-step approach. And a tee. He had missed six straight field goals. Little kicking wedge. And had torn a muscle in the thigh of his kicking leg. But he recovered in 1978, punting for an average of 43 yards per game and making 13 of 17 kicks. 
The Saints picked Erksleben with the 11th pick in the first round of the 1979 draft. That was extremely high for a kicker. It was then and remains the second highest spot a kicker was ever taken in the NFL draft behind only Princeton's Charlie Gogolak. I was going to say Charlie Gogolak. Who went number six in 1966. It's his brother paved the way, Pete Gogolak. Uh, but the Saints weren't going on a, out on a limb, which is interesting. Uh, all the draft prognosticators at the time, 1979, had him as a first-round talent. That would have been Mel Kuyper's, like first year as a draft prognosticator. He got Erksleben. Um So after he was drafted, Erksleben told the Austin American statesman, I might can win a couple more games for them than they did last year, but I'm not going to turn the franchise around or anything. Right you are, Russell Erksleben. In Erksleben's first game ever as a Saint in the opening week of the 1979 season, the Saints played the Falcons in the Superdome. The game went to overtime, and then this happened. Here it is, Lindsay. Here's the snap from center. Erksleben had no chance. The ball what, is Watson way over snap. It's Watson's snap. John Watson, number 67. Now, Watson, instead of trying to run forward, at least he tries to throw the ball up for grabs. That's tricky by 38, and he's in. He apremiended it, Stefan. He garrowed it. You know, so, the thing I love about 1979 NFL is that the soundtrack was there for, for, for the game when you're playing. You got you to gotta throw in those jazzy tunes. So the funny thing about that, and if you couldn't tell from the clip, what happened was the ball got snapped over his head, which wasn't his fault. What was his fault was that he picked up the ball, tried to throw it, threw it directly to an opposing player in overtime, which led to the Falcons winning the game immediately, um, as happens in sudden death. The funny thing is that he had expressed a desire to be a backup quarterback in the NFL, along with kicking and punting, though he, in that same story, he told the Austin American Statesman, he would not become another Johnny Unitas. Not my first year anyway. Right you are, Russell Erksleben. Uh, he played in the league for five full seasons, only made four out of eight field goals in his career. The whole kicking experiment went away quickly. His career long in the NFL was only 38 yards. He had a little bit more success as a punter, but not all that much. He only averaged 40.6 yards per kick bad. in his career. Thunderfoot? Nah. In 1999, Erksleben went to federal prison for running an investment scam that netted $36 million. And then in 2014, perhaps reflecting his diminished ambitions, he was sent to federal prison again. Uh, but this time, his investment scam only netted $2 million. People put you on a pedestal and you start to believe that you really are up there, he told America's leading Russell Erksleben chronicler the Austin American Statesman, that was in 2014. And then when it's all said and done and you come down and function in the real world, it's tough. Russell Erksleben, still in federal prison. He's in a Beaumont Low Security Federal Correctional Institution, scheduled to get out in August of 2019, Stefan. Yeah, he talks about that pedestal, and I would equate that to the little two-inch kicking platform that the field goal kickers were allowed to use back then. So his 67-yard field goal remains the longest NCAA kick, the longest kick, Josh, NAIA, 1976. Yeah. Yeah. Ova Johansson, Abilene Christian against East Texas State. I think you've talked about him before. I think I have. Uh, that is our show for today. That is our rundown of uh, 1970s era 
kicker records. I also just wish Russell Erksleben the best. The guy's taken a lot of crap from uh, the likes of Josh Levine. He's also taken a lot of Over money from other people, apparently. Maybe he'll, fig- maybe he'll figure it out. Our producer is Patrick Fort. So listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.